0: nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are... Again, thankful that we can come together this morning to study your word, that we can come together in freedom. We're thankful for Phil and his service. We're thankful for uh, others like him who are standing out there on between us and the forces of evil that seek to destroy, attack and destroy the freedom in this nation. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray that they would uh, make wise decisions, pray for those who uh, counsel and advise them that they would be uh, given giving wise counsel. We pray for those who would give evil counsel, that their counsel would be thwarted. Father, we pray for us as we study your word today that we might have genuine humility as we approach your word and that we might be open to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, respond to it. As he challenges us with the veracity of your word, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the seventh century, or almost early, almost the end of the eighth century BC in 701, the southern kingdom of Judah faced a national crisis. Nations face crises all the time. We face various crises today in our nation. We face a crisis of leadership. We face economic crisis. We face uh, potential military crises that, uh, given a, any simple turn of events, could bring uh, unimaginable horror and destruction on the life as we know it. And yet what stabilizes us is not uh, uh, our... Uh, confidence in our political leadership, not our confidence in our military leadership, not a confidence in our technology. But we know that God controls history and that the Lord Jesus Christ is has a plan. God the Father has a plan and God is the one who protects uh, the nation in order to bring about his plan in history. Just as nations face crises, we also face challenges and crises and uh, all kinds of things in our own personal lives and every single time we face a crisis in our personal life the issue is always the same that faced Hezekiah as he was challenged by the leaders of the Assyrian army in 701 we studied this last time in 2 kings 18 that the uh, that Sennacherib who is the king of the uh, of Assyria sent three of his top leaders his commander his uh, uh, chief of staff to, uh, to go to uh, confront the leaders in Jerusalem and to begin to wage a bit of a psychological campaign against them, challenging at the very core of their argument, they were challenging the uh, Israelites' trust in God, challenging Hezekiah's trust in God. And as we studied this last time, I pointed out that this is always the ultimate issue in every single test, every single adversity we face in life, are we willing to trust God? The uh, uh, leaders of the Assyrian army pointed out that no other gods had been able to protect their nations from the onslaught of the Assyrians, so why did they think that their god would do so. Gods can't do anything, after all. Hezekiah had wiped out all of, and destroyed all of these various temples to, uh, to God, the gods. And so, uh, how could they trust any of those gods? That is the same question, basically, that the serpent asked Eve in the Garden of Eden. When God had placed Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden, He gave them a test. That test was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was all kinds of food in the garden, and that food was given to them for their uh, health, for their benefit, and they could eat of any, any fruit of any tree. But God said, there's one tree you can't eat of, and if you eat of that, the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. That was the test as to whether they would obey God and submit to his authority or whether they would uh, do things their own way. And seek to determine first if God were right, which means that they would be placing themselves in a position over God, judging God as to whether he were true or false. And so that became the key issue, is God's word true? So when Satan appears to Eve in the garden, he said, has God really said, you shall not eat of all the fruit in the garden? And so what he's doing is he's questioning the the veracity of God. Does he really care for you? Is his word really true? Does he, he really know enough to know what's right and what's wrong uh, for you in your life? And can you really truly trust him in the clinches? That's the same question that is being posed to Hezekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem. Can you really trust God and his word? And so today I want to begin by looking at this particular question, can we really trust the Bible? Can you really trust in God's word? After all, uh, maybe this is just some other religious book. Other people believe their book is from God. You have the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. You have uh, various other religious traditions. How do we know that the Bible really is the word of God and that the Bible is true? Now, last time, last time I pointed out that the first reason we know in uh, this, our soul, in the very heart of our being, that the Word of God is true is because the Word of God comes with a self-authenticating confirmation. Now that's not mysticism. That's not saying, well, I know it's true just because it's, no, it's true. It's not like what the Mormons say that you just have this burning in your bosom. That's the phrase they always use. And uh, I remember some years ago I was up at uh, Palmyra, New York, and going through uh, the the Mormon uh, museum there. That's where Joseph Smith was born. And there was an elderly man in his uh, late 70s who was my tour guide. And uh, he started giving me his testimony. That's their responsibility. They're really missionaries. So if you ever go to any of those places, you realize the tour guide is a missionary, and his job is to uh, convert you to Mormonism. And uh, he was telling me about how he had grown up in uh, Georgia, and he had been in a Baptist church for most of his life. Incidentally, the Southern Baptist denomination is the source of the greatest number of converts, the highest percentage of converts, uh, from any one group uh, to Mormonism, and that's because I think that in 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 not just the Baptist church, but in a lot of evangelical churches, there's a shallow or superficial uh, mysticism that Mormon. Uh, authority really appeals to and that is how do you know it's true it's true because it sort of resonates or vibrates inside of me uh, there's not any necessary his, uh, uh, objective validation verification archaeological documentation any of those things for the teachings of the uh, Mormon church but all they appeal to is this subjective resonant in your soul well that's not what we're talking about When God speaks to anyone in the Old Testament, you notice that they don't stop and say, is that that really you, God? They fall on their face. It it, it is the voice of God. You don't question it. You know it. Now, you may, uh, in terms of the voice of God that comes in Scripture, you may suppress that truth in unrighteousness, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, but nevertheless, in your heart of hearts, in the core of your soul, you know that that is true. So that's the first way we know that it's true. But we don't stop there. As Bible-believing Christians, we know that God recognized that people would also question, how do we really know that it's true? And I pointed out at the end of our class the last time that in the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites two tests, two tests to make sure that when a prophet said, thus says the Lord, that it truly was God speaking and not some prophet just promoting his own agenda. The first test was the test of consistency. That's covered in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. And the point there is if you have settled, secure, uh, agreed upon certain revelation from God and somebody comes along and says to do something that is that contradicts what God has already said to do or not to do, then you know that he's not from God. God is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to say to do one thing at one time and then say to do just the opposite sometime later. So consistency is the first test given in the Torah. And the second test was that when a prophet predicted an event to occur, he had to be 100% accurate. If he was off in any detail no matter how minor it was, then he would be a false prophet and he was to be stoned. In either case, if anybody claimed to say that they were speaking for the Lord and they weren't, then the death penalty was to be invoked immediately. And the reason for that is that the ultimate authority in anyone's life is God, and if you are going to counterfeit that, then that is the most horrible, the most egregious, the most dangerous thing you can do because it will change a person's life, change uh, change their destiny. So we saw that those two are the tests of consistency, the test of 100% predictive accuracy. From that we see a couple of uh, uh, principles. First of all, if the Bible is the objective revelation of God to us, then there will be external confirmation. We will be able to verify and validate uh, a number of things in that revelation, not necessarily everything, but that what we do discover historically, archaeologically, scientifically, it will comport with what the word of God says to be true, and it will not contradict it second we know that there will be verification in the transmission and the preservation of the text of scripture so that we have historical and through historical and archaeological confirmation we know that uh the hebrew text that we have that lies behind the uh, english translation that you have in your old testament the greek of the greek new testament is uh, 100% accurate we have the word of god it didn't change over time and so we know that it's it's confirmed through uh archaeological historical uh confirmation that there's uh, also verification the transmission preservation of the text and then generally we can look back and see that there've been uh, the prophecies that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled precisely and to the letter of what the uh, original uh prophecy uh stated now as we Look at the scriptures we know, and as we study this and address this whole question of can we really trust the Bible, there are a lot of questions that people ask. One is, um, isn't the Bible just another human book subject to error and expressing different opinions about God? Uh, Some say, isn't the Bible full of contradictions and errors? And you will hear people who will go to this passage or that passage and say, here you have this said, and here you have that said. And see, they have an agenda. Their assumption when they come to the text is that there is a contradiction there. And rather than going, Uh, two inches below the surface, and discovering that there isn't a contradiction, they stay at a superficial level. Third, people will say, hasn't the Bible been changed over the years because it's been copied and translated so many times? The Bible is not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. Translations all go back to the original uh, Greek and Hebrew texts. Others say, well, how can we be sure that the Bible we have today is the same as what was originally written. And we can, uh, know the answer to that because one, one clear example is when, uh, up until 1948 with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic text that is the, the basis for our Hebrew Old Testament had, uh, w- was really traced back. The oldest, uh, document we had for that was about the 9th to 10th century AD. Now that's really not that old as far as things go. And then when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there were, uh, the the greatest uh, discovery among the biblical scrolls was the Isaiah scroll, which was complete. And there were a number of other, Uh, books of the Old Testament that were there and when the comparisons were made between the Masoretic text of the, uh, 10th, 9th century AD and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which basically were covered the period from about 2 uh, BC up through the first uh, century AD, that there were uh, very, very few differences, and the vast majority of the differences were just uh, updates in spelling, updates in uh, modernization of some terms o- over time. And uh, in many cases, what was discovered was that the that uh, and they have various ways of evaluating this is that the uh, Masoretic text, the text that underlies the Hebrew Old Testament, was actually superior. To the text that they had uh, that uh, at, in the Dead Sea. So, uh, and one of the reasons they can discover that is because in Hebrew was originally written with just consonants, no vowel points, no vowels. So, with just consonants, and you always have to, you know, work at it a little bit because it reads backwards from right to left, and no vowels, so you have to learn that. But over the over time, in the development of the language and the study of the Old Testament. The uh, the the Jewish scribes developed systems of adding vowel uh, indicators, what they call vowel points, and um, and so initially they just had two or three vowels that they would insert into the various words to indicate the pronunciation, to preserve the pronunciation. But over time they developed a couple of other systems for inserting those vowel points. So if you have a a, a, a Hebrew document that has fewer vowel points than another one I mean of the same pa- of the same passage then you know that the one that has fewer vowel points is based on an older text and the masoretic text actually has fewer vowel points in the torah that's the first 5 books of the old testament than the dead sea scroll text of the uh, 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 of the torah so that indicates that you have that the masoretic text is based on an older uh, original than the Dead Sea Scroll. So we can be sure that things have not changed over the years. Uh, some people say that there were people who uh, just got together and they're the ones that impose their opinions on which books should be in the Bible and which it should, whether it was a group of rabbis or the Council of Joni or Constantine or somebody else. And what is recognized at those councils is what's been accepted in practice it's sort of a recognition of a de facto reality. It is not imposing something. It's basically saying the books that have been accepted as authoritative for the last two or three hundred years are these, and we are recognizing that. So it is not uh, it's a misrepresent, misrepresentation to say that any individual group of individuals chose these books. They recognized what had internal authority. Others raise the question, there are so many different interpretations of the Bible, how can we know what is right? Well, that's why you learn how to do Bible study methods, how you learn to investigate anything. If you're going to let a question like that put you off, then let's let everybody out of jail and quit investigating crimes. You know, there's so many versions of of, uh, any particular crime or any particular event, uh, uh, but there are ways to investigate, ways to study, ways to evaluate evidence so that you can come to a certain understanding of what the text says probably 98% of the time. There's a few passages we're just not sure. They're a little obscure. It just takes a little more digging and a little more time to study that. Uh, second, uh, I mean, another question people ask, isn't the Bible the product of evolving religion that originated with the Babylonians and the Assyrians? And, and that's just not true. When you look at what the Bible says over against any other religious system in the ancient world, it's the difference is night and day because the Bible holds to a God who is uh, a, a unified God who is outside of creation and all of the other uh, religious systems have a God that is part of creation and who is subject to the laws of the creation. So ultimately they put matter ahead of God, sort of like modern scientific theories of evolution. And then people will say, well, doesn't the Bible contain historical and scientific errors? And uh, that is not true, and I'm not going to have time to go into all of those details. That's a totally different different arena. But if you're interested, especially on the scientific area, we had a uh, conference here back in March on the topic of creation and evolution, and you can get those DVDs and those MP3 files. They're easily downloadable off the website or any other media format you uh, wish to use in order to see the answer to those questions. What I want to do to begin with is just uh, start with a a little flow chart to trace the logic that underlies uh, our understanding of the truth of God's word. First question we're going to ask is does God exist? Now, you know, there's only two ways to answer that question, either no or yes. If the answer is no, then life really has no meaning. We we end the discussion there. There is no God, and therefore everything is just a matter of random chance. And the only reason we're here is because there was some uh, accident on some primordial uh, piece of slime that caused a little electronic reaction, and one thing led to another, and now we're here. But it's all a matter of uh, of just pure random chance, and so we're we're not any more valuable than a rock. Uh, so we'll just that, that would just end the discussion. But if God does exist, then the next question is, can God communicate? Now, if God can't communicate, then he's not much of a God. So, uh, when we answer that question uh, again, it can either be no or yes. If, it's, if the answer is no, then um, he's not really much of a God. So, yes, we must assume that for God to be God, he can communicate. Well, the next question is, can he communicate? Clearly, Anybody who's married know that somebody can communicate, but that doesn't mean it's a clear communication, that you're able to uh, communicate what you are thinking so that the other person can understand it. That's what clear communication is. Now, if if God cannot communicate clearly, then he, once again, he's not much of a God. So uh, that would sort of end the discussion, but that ends up in just a quagmire of irrationality. So, yes, if God is God, he can not only communicate, but he can communicate clearly. He would be the creator who created human beings, and if he wants to communicate them, don't you think that he would be able to, co- to create us in such a way that He we would be able to respond to his communication? If you were an inventor and you're going to invent the radio and you're going to invent a transmitter, you're going to make sure that the transmitter can transmit on the same wavelength as the receiver so that communication can take place. And that's just the finite mind of humanity. So God's a little beyond that. So not only can he communicate clearly, but he designed mankind to be able to hear and understand his communication. Now, what man wants to do is say, no, no, wait a minute. You know, we're, we're like the guy in the uh, in the TV drama, who takes a cell phone and rattles a bunch of paper at the cell phone and says, wait a minute, you're breaking up, I'm not hearing you, the transmission's garbled. And uh, and so then they hang up. Uh, that's not because God can't communicate clearly, it's because we don't want to listen. That's a, another issue. And then the next question is, if God can communicate and communicate clearly, can God protect his communication so that it is preserved Down through the ages, so that everybody in the human race can hear it and can understand it. So, if God, so what we conclude then is if God can communicate, and He can, and He can communicate clearly, and He can, and He can protect His communication, and He can, then what would the characteristics of that communication be? Well, I pointed out one already, and that is that it would have an inherent authority it would be self-authenticating in uh, terms of his voice but also it would have other other characteristics it would be consistent there would not be uh, contradictions Uh, it would be accurate where it could be tested it would be accurate not everything would necessarily be able to be uh, uh, verified or validated but that which could be verified or validated would be accurate. Therefore, it would be supported through different types of evidence, textual evidence, historical evidence, archaeological evidence, and uh, in terms of its makeup, what it states, uh, not only would it be consistent, but it would be internally logical and rational. Rational. Now, the reason I say internally logical and rational is if you don't accept the basic presuppositions, the basic assumptions of the Bible, which is basically what we've been going over, and that is that there is a God, that he exists, and that he can communicate to man. If you don't believe that, then you're going to look at the Bible as just a bunch of irrational, illogical mumbo-jumbo, just as if you are a Bible-believing Christian and you read the Bhagavad Gita, then you're going to think it's just a bunch of mystical, magical, mumbo-jumbo, and it's a bunch of nonsense. That's because you don't believe, uh, you're not going to grant the basic assumptions that lie behind that religious book. Same thing if you're comparing or evaluating the Quran or the Book of Mormon or something like that. So the Bible is internally logical and rational, and it is without error. In the original always emphasize that because people have copied things and error has gone in in different times but that is always corrected because of the uh, number of uh, number of manuscripts that we have so we then raise the question, has God communicated to man? And the answer is, if God created man, then he would communicate to man, he would have uh, created man in such a way as to respond to that communication. And the Bible claims to uh, be that communication to man. It claims that in a number of different ways and a number of different uh, passages. For example, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. Actually, the Greek means it's breathed out by God. God is the source. 2 Peter 1.20-21 20 states, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's not their word about God. It is God's word through them. Second Samuel twenty-three two. Samuel said that, or the writer says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Uh, in Zechariah seven twelve, we read the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets again and again and again you have this emphasis on the fact that it is God who is the author of scripture and he speaks through the writers of scripture numbers twenty-three nineteen emphasizes the veracity of that communication God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good Many, many times in the Scripture you have the phrase, thus says the Lord. It is not Jeremiah's opinion. It's not Daniel's opinion. It's not Matthew or Mark or Luke or Paul's opinion. It is the Lord who is speaking. We have the phrase, God said, 46 times in the Bible. We have the phrase God spoke 12 times in the Bible. We have the phrase the Lord said 233 times in the Bible. We have the phrase the Lord spoke 133 times in the Bible. And we have the phrase says the Lord uh, 502 times in the Bible. And that doesn't cover all of the various ways in which the writers indicate that God is the one who is speaking. But just among those Uh, five different phrases, that's over 900 times throughout the Scripture, we have the Scripture claiming that what it is giving us is the very Word of God, not the Word of man. So now we have the question, is the Bible true? Second flowchart, let's just think about this logically. First of all, the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because a lot of people think that what the Bible is is man's record of his encounters with God. So these people had an encounter with God, and they wrote it down, and that's just their subjective impressions. That's just their ideas. It's not something that is being transmitted from outside of themselves through them to us. That's what we believe, that the Bible is God's Word communicated through human authors to us, So the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man. Again and again and again, as we saw over 900 times with just those phrases we looked at. So either this is a false or true. You only have those two options. Either you're going to agree that the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man, or you don't speak English. Right? Because that's what it says. So if um, you only have two options, it's either false or true now if it's false then that means that the and the bible isn't god's revelation of himself to man then it's no better than any other book at the very least it's no better than any other religious book it's no better than a biography of george washington or a biography of karl marx it's just another book and it just has somebody else's opinion if it's false then it really is a fraud and deceptive and should be rejected completely and destroyed because if the Bible claims it is the word of God and it is going to give you absolute truth and it's not the word of God and it's all a lie, then it's just a horrible, terrible, uh, wicked thing. And so why in the world should we have it at all to just deceive and confuse people? Now, there are atheists out there, and that is their agenda Because they do believe that the Bible is a fraud and that it's completely deceptive and that it should be uh, taken out and every, every Bible destroyed, but that is because they hate God. In contrast, if the statement is true, that the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man, if it is true, then it is the unique book of human history. It's the unique book of the universe. And should be valued above everything else. This is what the writer of the Psalm, Psalm 19, this morning I read from Psalm 119, but Psalm 19 is also a Psalm that extols the value of the Word of God. And in Psalm 19, we read that the Word of God, the law of God, the testimony of God is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. So the writer of Scripture recognized that nothing in life, no job, no career, no individual, nothing in life is more valuable than the Word of God. Well, what are some of the things that make the Word of God unique? Now, I'm going to go through some of this rather quickly, because what I'm intending to do, and I do this now and again, for those of you who are visitors, I want to warn you why I do this. I want to Uh, overload you with a mass of data. I don't want you to necessarily be able to write down everything. I want to overload you with how much evidence there is and not just give you necessarily two or three little things. First of all, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years at least. Moses wrote about 1405 B.C. The last book written was written about 95 A.D. But uh, Job may have been written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We don't know. And the, the uh, sources that Moses used uh, were written before Moses uh, collated them, especially into the book of, uh, of Genesis. So here you have a book that's written over 1,500 years. Obviously, one person didn't write it. You don't even have two or three people uh, that write it. In fact, the Bible was written by over 30 authors from a wide variety of backgrounds. Now, I would suggest that if we took 30 well-educated people out of this congregation and had them write out uh, three- to five-page uh, position papers on any number of controversial subjects, everything from freedom to politics to law to morality, uh, what it, marriage, uh, whatever it might be, that we couldn't get those 30 people who've been sitting here who basically agree on most things to agree on every piece of minutiae. And yet in the Bible, what you have is over 30 authors who are writing over 1,500 years. In most cases, they didn't even know each other. And they write and discuss uh, all the most controversial subjects in human history, and they don't disagree with each other. And they came from a lot of different backgrounds. Moses was trained from birth to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. He turned his back on that and uh, aligned himself with uh, his people, uh, the Israelites. Joshua was a general. Samuel was a prophet. David was a shepherd who became a warrior and later king of Israel. He was also a musician and a poet. Uh, Amos was a herdsman and a farmer and a fig picker. Isaiah was part of the aristocracy in Israel. He was part of the royal family. Solomon uh, was a king. Uh, Daniel was a captive who was taken hostage to Babylon and was trained to be a bureaucrat in Babylon. Eventually, he became uh, the the uh, third most powerful person. In um, in Babylon, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. That was the second most uh, powerful position in the government under the uh, emperor. Uh, Matthew was a Jew who worked as a Roman tax collector, much hated by the rest of the Jews. Uh, sort of like most of you have fe- warm, fuzzy feelings for IRS agents. Um, John was a commercial fisherman. Luke was a physician. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. Uh, Peter also was a commercial fisherman, so they represented a lot of different educational backgrounds. They represented a lot of different cultural backgrounds, and they operated over a period of 1,500 years, yet they were uh, unified in everything they said about every uh, topic. The Bible is unified around one basic theme, which is presenting God's redemptive plan, for the human race, and there's no contradiction from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one way to salvation, and that's God's way, not man's way, and it's based on grace and not on works. Uh, I've already mentioned this one, point number four, the Bible covers all the most controversial subjects, yet without contradiction. It was written in a wide variety of styles in literary genre. You have poetry, you have history, you have uh, law, uh, you have prophecy, all of these different styles. And each of the books is written in the style of its uh, personality, of its author. Uh, and sixth, in its unity, it's always focused on God's redemptive plan. Uh, eighth, it's unique in its preservation. In fact, one of the uh, great scholars of Scripture in the 20th century was a man by the name of Bernard Ram, who wrote a book on uh, uh, several books related to Scripture and interpretation, and he wrote concerning the preservation of the Old Testament that Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. With their Masora, that is, the various... Uh, uh, various annotations and marks that they put into the text in order to make sure that people would rem- remember the punctuation and uh, and preserve the pronunciation. They kept tabs on every letter, every syllable, every word, and every paragraph they could tell you what the middle word of every sentence was supposed to be what the middle letter of every sentence was supposed to be what the middle word on every page was supposed to be and they had that memorized in fact i have been told that back in the middle ages that if you were going to uh be accepted into that uh, that rare group that would copy the the torah scrolls and the old testament text that uh, you would have to memorize the Old Testament, memorize all of this information so that by the time you were six or seven years old, you would have memorized the entire Torah in Hebrew along with all of this minutia. By the time you were 13 or 14, you would have the whole uh, Old Testament memorized so that when you uh, would uh, to be accepted into this group, uh, you would have to know the the text so well that if someone were to take a nail and drive it through the pages of Scripture and ask you what uh, uh, what letter that nail intersected on page 375, you could say. That's because they wanted to make sure that there were no mistakes. Nobody uh, left a word out, or left a letter out, or changed a word, or anything of that of that nature. Ninth, we learn that the Bible is unique in the way it describes the lives of its heroes, the people in the Scripture. They are described complete with all of their flaws and failures. We learn all about their sins. We learn all about the, uh, the incest. We learn about adultery. We learn about their arrogance, everything like that. And so we just, uh, uh, it's not like that in any other book. These things are looked past. Lewis Barry Schaffer said of the Bible that the Bible is not such a book as man would write if he could or could write if he would. The Bible claims for itself uh, absolute authority and that it will be preserved. Isaiah 40, verse 8 states that the, gr- the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And so we have again and again these claims of Scripture that the the words of Scripture are the very words of God. Isaiah 59.21, uh, I'll just give you a couple more references. Uh, Isaiah 55.11 uh, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Now, you can only say that and emphasize that if the word of God is indeed the very word of God, his revelation to us. But the word of God is constantly attacked. It's attacked by the uh, skeptics and rationalists who seek to reject God and they would like to say that there's absolutely no evidence of creation, no evidence of a flood, uh, no evidence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Moses, or ex- the Exodus. Uh, there's no, uh, if you believe them, then there was no actual meeting with God at Mount Sinai by the Jews. Uh, there's no law from God. There's no miracles. There's no virgin birth. There's no resurrection because there's no God and there's no salvation. And so what you get from liberal theology is a skepticism that from the get-go rejects the fact that God exists and that God can communicate. In contrast to that, we have evidence, evidence that confirms the truth of Scripture. In the New International Dictionary of Biblical Archaeology, in the introduction we read concerning archaeological evidence, "...that the purpose of biblical archaeology is to recover material remains of man's past, not to prove the accuracy or historicity of the Bible. Nevertheless, it is important to note that Near Eastern archaeology has demonstrated the historical and geographical reliability of the Bible in many important areas by clarifying the objectivity and factual accuracy of biblical authors," Archaeology also helps correct the view that the Bible is avowedly partisan and subjective. It is now known, for instance, that along with the Hittites, Hebrew scribes were the best historians in the entire ancient Near East, despite contradictory propaganda that emerged from Assyria, Egypt, and elsewhere. Nelson Gluck, who is one of the most renowned biblical archaeologists in the 20th century, stated, All that I have ever said is that in all of my archaeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement in the Word of God. Archaeology, actually, again and again and again, there are things that are discovered that confirm Scripture when there are numerous so-called scholars and academics and archaeologists who have even claimed the opposite. Um When we get into looking at the Old Testament, just a couple of things that uh, I want to point out that you can uh, be, be reminded of in some cases, uh, for example, when Nineveh was discovered in the uh, near the middle of the nineteenth century, the very existence of Nineveh had been doubted before that. But once it was excavated, they discovered numerous libraries. Uh, Nineveh is located uh, near Basra in uh, uh, in the um, in, in in northern iraq and uh, our mosul i believe and our Bas- mosul and across the river and uh, that's where uh, it was discovered by henry lagarde in the early uh, early part of 19th uh, 19th century in the 1840s uh, and there what they discovered at the excavation of Nineveh and the library of king asher banerpal of assyria A little bit before the time period we're studying in in 2 Kings, they found a set of seven tablets called the creation epic that listed six days of creation and one day of rest. Other creation stories have been found, for example, the Enuma Elish, which is uh, the Babylonian creation story. Uh, is uh, gives us insight into how the original story of Scripture got perverted as it got transmitted into other uh, other cultures. Um, but the Bible stands unique in terms of its of its literature. What you often find liberals saying is that the Bible just reflects these Assyrian, Babylonian, or Egyptian myths. And the reality is the Bible came first. And those myths are deteriorations, distortions, and corruptions of the truth of Scripture. And so what the critics then come along and say is that, well, the Bible was written this way, that way, and then it was revised, and it was rewritten, and it was patched together from different documents. And uh, one uh, textual uh, writer uh, comments on that, uh, Dr. Millard states, all who suspect um a uh, suspect or that 's type of there all who suspect or suggest a borrowing by the Hebrews are compelled to admit large scale revision. see those who say that the, that really uh, the, the, the Jews borrowed from the other cultures uh, rather than the other way around are compelled by their position to admit large scale revision alteration and reinterpretation in a fashion which cannot be substantiated for any other composition from the ancient Near East or any other Hebrew writing. Nobody else did that. You can't prove that anybody else did that kind of writing in any other field, in any other endeavor. They just have to say that they did that in relationship uh, to the Bible. Uh, in um, uh, In Genesis, there is the story of the universal flood and even though there are some christians who debate that the flood was uh uh worldwide nearly every culture in the world has a has a flood story has a story of the judgment of the gods that destroyed uh the earth at that time uh the tower of babel in genesis chapter 11 uh, is documented by various uh historical records related to uh the building of these ziggurats in the ancient world uh Sodom and Gomorrah which was destroyed by God because of the homosexuality and uh the dis- uh destruction uh, I mean and their sexual perversity uh was destroyed by God and the scripture says that it was done by uh fire and brimstone that God rained down upon those cities uh Philo who was a 1st century a sort of a contemporary of of uh, Josephus at near the time of our Lord, stated that the evidence of that destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah could still be seen in his day. Back in the 1930s uh, uh, and 40s, William F. Albright uh, believed that the cities were under the Dead Sea, but later by 1960, uh, it was discovered that, uh, it was most likely at Babadra, which is located on the, uh, east shore of the Dead Sea. There they found various, uh, uh charnel houses and remains, which indicated that, uh, these houses uh burned from the inside out that the roofs were destroyed by fire the fire then fell through the roof and collapsed and burned the insides of the of the buildings uh, from the inside out which is consistent with the evidence of, of scripture it destroyed the, dead, the 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 sea there that's now the salt sea that has all these various mineral formations uh related to uh uh, what took place during that particular uh, judgment. Genesis 19.24 says that the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the, that the smoke of that destruction uh, rose from the land like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, we also have the uh, black steely, which uh, has written on it, the Code of Hammurabi and this is a legal code written some 3 centuries before Moses wrote the Exodus now early 19th century liberal uh, liberal theologians said Moses probably couldn't even write he certainly couldn't write anything as sophisticated as as the uh, as Mosaic law, and here we have evidence that, that precedes that and shows that that's perfectly consistent with that time period. It used to be that the liberals said that, ah, we, and, and what we call the uh, the minimalists uh, in archaeology say, well, there's no evidence of, no mention of these biblical people in any archaeological record, so they would even deny the existence of David, and yet in 1993 an artifact was found in uh, and Tel Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel, that had a uh, statement in there in reference to the house of David. Other uh, discoveries since then have also confirmed the existence of the house of David. The existence of the Hittites was doubted by for, for many, many years until in 1911, 1912, uh, the uh, remains of their capital in uh, Bogazkoy, uh, Turkey was discovered. Uh, Solomon, there's evidence of Solomon. The scripture says that he kept a chariot core uh, at Megiddo and that there were stables there, and those have, have been discovered. When you get into the uh, New Testament, there's been a lot of debate over whether there actually was anyone uh, named Quirinius who's mentioned in Luke 2.2 2, that there was a, a census uh, uh, at the time of Quirinius when he was governor and that this was what brought of course, brought Mary and Joseph to uh, to Bethlehem, and that was doubted for many years. But both the um, um, but that there's been discovery that there was a Quirinius who ruled as proconsul of Syria. And Silesia from 11 BC until 4 BC. And other papyri indicate that in certain census, census takings in the ancient world, they did mandate a return, uh, to the, uh, to the birthplace, to the home. There were also uh, questions about uh, the existence of Capernaum, which was where Jesus lived as an adult and had a lot of his, was a base for his ministry. Uh, discovery was made uh, or excuse me, I'm, this is, Be- this is Bethlehem, this is the Church of the Nativity. There was a lot of question as to whether or not, um, uh, Bethlehem even existed. And then, uh, there was, a discovery was made not too long ago of a ship mosaic in the lowest floor of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which read, Lord, I came. This was dated to about 100 AD, uh, indicating that uh, by 100, people were going, making pilgrimage to that site as the birthplace of Jesus. When uh, Hadrian uh, defeated the Jews in the second rebellion, uh, he planted a grove of worship of Adonis over the site because he wanted to wipe out all evidence of Christian sites and Jewish sites uh, at that time. Uh, uh, the church father, Jerome, who translated the um, uh, Bible into Latin, which became the Vulgate, uh, did so at this particular uh, location because this is where uh, uh, history said that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Uh, Eusebius recorded that Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, built a church there in order to preserve that place of birth because of the evidence that she was given. We also learned the existence of Capernaum. This is a second temple. Uh, I mean a second-century uh, synagogue that's built over the site of the first-century synagogue where Jesus taught, and so we know of the existence of, um, uh, of Capernaum. We know here is a uh, an ossuary. This is the bone box for the remains of Caiaphas, who is mentioned in the Scripture as the uh, uh, high priest at the time. Uh, of Jesus. And so this is his uh, ossuary that's been discovered. We've also discovered uh, evidence, uh, textual evidence, mentioning the name of Pontius Pilate as a historical uh, person. Uh, So we know of uh, uh, all of these various things that indicate that that what the scripture says historically about the time of the birth of Christ has been uh, verified uh, uh, textually. Here is a also uh, remains discovered of uh, of a nail uh, cru- that of a cru- remains of a bone of a person who's crucified, uh, this is a nail going through the ankle bone, and would indicate the same thing. This is a picture depicting that how the the, the feet would be placed side by side, and then uh, a spike driven through the ankle bone, and that would confirm the. Uh, way in which uh, crucifixion took place so all of these things validate what scripture says now that just covers the first part which is historical the second part is prophecy i'll come back we'll cover that next time answering the question can we really believe that the bible is true yes we can The option that it is false means it would be the most horrible, wicked, destructive book of all time, and nothing in it is worth paying attention to. And the evidence internally and externally just cannot support that. And therefore, the message of the Bible is the most important message, and the core message is that we all need salvation. And that comes through God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. We cannot just treat the Bible like another book. It is the most significant book in all of history, and there is nothing more valuable in our lives than to know biblical truth. God has spoken, and it is true, and we can rely upon it with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study Uh, these things this morning, to be reminded of the truth of your word and how you have preserved it down through the ages, that you are a God who can communicate to us, you are a God who communicated clearly to us, and you are a God who has preserved that revelation so that we can know who you are, know who we are, and understand the plan of salvation. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they can take this opportunity to make sure and certain of that eternal destiny. But scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you have eternal life, and that life will never be taken from you. It is an irre- irreversible process, and once saved, you are always saved. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge those who need the gospel to believe in Christ this morning, And we also pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged with the veracity of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.